You've got to start with your why. And when you start with your why for your practice, you can then engage the right people and the right talent and they gravitate towards your clinic. They want to work for you. They want to work with you. They want to stay at your hospital. And so when you're clear with your mission, your vision and your values, especially your core values, the rest of it just becomes that much easier. And that's just, to me, the core and the foundation of organizational leadership is being able to communicate that vision and that why. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Whisker Talks, the veterinary marketing podcast from Whisker Cloud. I'm Adam Greenbaum, CEO and founder of Whisker Cloud. And today I have Dr. Bonnie Bragdon on. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me today, Adam. Thank you. As we were just discussing, you were the first guest ever on this podcast that I've never personally met, which I think is going to make for a unique conversation. Well, I'm very excited. I love meeting new people. And I think what people have told me frequently is I make them think differently. You may not like it, but I I will oftentimes challenge people and make them think differently. I love that because I've been told I'm just too blunt and straightforward for vet med sometimes. So let's just get weird on this episode. Let's do it. And as I told you, we don't prepare questions. So here I am, just so everyone out there listening, I just met Bonnie (laughs) a minute before you're hearing this. And I talked and I said, I don't prepare questions. And typically I know people. So I'm like, oh, hey, I saw what you post on social media. I I can't say that here, but... We do send out a questionnaire and man, did you, you nailed it. Cause you know, when we asked what's your favorite thing about vet med, you wrote at the end, they just need to find their superpower. And I'll kind of talk about what that meant. But on this podcast, everyone knows I love the incredible Hulk and I love Marvel. So I actually ask everyone, what is your veterinary origin story? So, you know, Bruce Banner was a scientist developing the A-bomb with gamma radiation. A young teenager was running out. He went to save him took the brunt of the bomb. Now he's the Hulk. So that happened. So what was your entry to veterinary medicine? Yeah. So oddly enough, or, or maybe similar to other folks, I grew up in a small town in rural Maine and I felt very different in that I was always the book smart kid. Literally one of the assignments was bring your favorite book to class. I literally brought like 20 books because I couldn't decide what my favorite book was. And so I was always the smart kid. And I didn't really know how I could fit into my community at the time. I really wanted to return to Maine. And so, like so many other kids of of my generation, I started watching James Harriet. was really inspired that, hey, this is an area where I could use my book smarts to help my community. I was further inspired. And again, this may be TMI, but I'm just going to lay it all out there. I grew up in a working class family and my grandfather at the time had this huge dilapidated barn that was falling down and somehow people would drop cats off at this barn and he would literally dump like 20 pound bags of cat food out in this huge barn and there would be kittens everywhere and I would occasionally find a dead cat in the bushes and I thought, wow, if I could just learn how to spay and neuter cats, I could make a really significant difference here in my community and for my family and at my home. So that's my origin story. I didn't quite get back to Maine, um, but animal rescue and animal control is definitely a part of my origin story. 
That's really cool. And yeah, I mean, my origin story is no different. I mean, I ran a dog rescue that ended up going yeah. national. I worked with so many veterinarians in so many different cities and states where I would get a call saying, hey, we found a Boston Terrier that had acid poured on yeah. it. And I would reach out to local vets and they, and they would be so helpful for us that, you know, I just fell in love with the profession and the people. And that's why I built Whisker Cloud. It's because I was never going to be able to heal the pets myself or do anything, but I was going to find a way to support the people that did. And, and now I'm kind of, this is my life's mission, which is great. Well, what I think is so important and given the diversity of my career, and we won't really talk about how long that career has been, but given the <laughs> diversity of my career, I would really hope the veterinarians and the nurses listening understand how many people there are that are really wanting to help veterinarians be successful and, and the healthcare team. And so I worked in corporate America for 13 years now, got to know a lot of salespeople really well, a lot of marketers really well. And the one thing I hear over and over and over again is how much these support teams love working with veterinarians and their teams and how caring and empathetic and kind they are. And I just hope that's something that veterinarians never lose. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I struggle with sometimes when we do have customers that are rude to our support team and stuff. It's like, we empathize with you. You know, it's like, and again, I think everyone sort of sees their life in their bubble and says, sees like, this is what I'm going through today. No one understands it. Where for us, we're like, hey, we support 2,600 people. Actually, it's more like 3,000 now around the world. Your story, we actually hear that same story 200 times a day. It's interesting just because we see the and we've seen even some of our favorite, nicest, best customers, especially during COVID, we've seen the tone of their emails change, not even to say that they're yeah. being rude, just like they just seem down and you can literally read it in the emails. And I found it to be really interesting. And you kind of talked about that in the questionnaire you sent about professional burnout. Yeah. And we'll we'll jump into that, but let's talk about the good in veterinary medicine first. Absolutely. So. You wrote diversity and job function, which is interesting because I think a lot of people write that and, and you're right. Like you could go get a veterinary degree and you could be a business owner. You could be a yes. mobile vet. You can see cats and dogs. You can see equine. So what makes that so great for you? And do you think that every veterinarian out there kind of understands that, that they don't just have to go be an associate vet and call it a career? Right. And so the wonderful thing, for better or for worse, if you actually follow my resume, you may get a little bit confused because I started off, I actually went through veterinary school as a, a single mother, thought I wanted to become an equine orthopedic surgeon. And that would have been like the worst career. Like I can't see lameness. I didn't need to be out after hours as a single mother. So I ended up taking a job in a small town called Hepzibah, Georgia. And oddly enough, I was practicing one day and the owner of the practice had committed to doing a television interview for a reporter about the local shelter. And the local animal control shelter was under a great deal of fire because of the way they were euthanizing animals. They had a distemper outbreak and they were having to, for the lack of a better word, kind of kill off everybody in the shelter. The owner of the practice couldn't make the interview. And lo and behold, as a first year veterinarian, I'm in the middle of a camera being interviewed for a reporter. And the reason I bring that up is because that just opened my mind to all of the possibilities and all of the different job functions that are out there. And so that led to me becoming the director of an animal control agency. And then I went on to own my own practice. And then I kind of got bored there and I went on to work technical services 
for corporate America for a, a drug company and then learned about marketing and I learned about sales and I learned about executive leadership and now I've gone back to self-employment. And so the point of that long story and that long journey is I really think that veterinarians often don't understand what's available to them. And I would have veterinarians when I was traveling with my sales team ask me, how do I become a technical services veterinarian? What is there out there for me? And they would so quickly shut down. Oh, I can't lecture. I can't get in front of a crowd. I can't do this and I can't do that. And I promise you, like I said, if you can understand the Krebs cycle, if you can do a spay, if you can put together an anesthesia machine, I promise you, I can teach you almost anything there is about public speaking and finance and all those other things. And so there's so much diversity in job function and there's so many things that veterinarians can do. And I really feel like veterinarians just aren't aware of all their career choices. Well, it's really interesting. You hit on one point when you were talking about how like they're afraid to go public speak. I've really felt this is the second business I've owned. Both have been really successful. Obviously, Whisker Cloud has reached heights that I really never thought it would. I didn't think I'd have a company with 30 employees. That really blows my mind five years after starting it, totally bootstrapped. And and I think about, and as weird as this sounds, if you look at the most successful people, they tend to be really outspoken and just able to be loud about things. Even if, and, and I'm not a political person, I'll say this, politicians on both sides, you've kind of found that the ones that sort of get the most attention are just the ones who are willing to be the loudest and really yeah. get out there. And that's not always necessarily a great thing. But I will say for me, I think my ability to be willing to speak, be willing to have this podcast, be willing to meet our customers, be willing to yeah. deal with tough customers and great customers has really changed my life and, and given me a much better opportunity to grow my business. I mean, I'm, I'm a person that has 140,000 social media followers for just for myself, not even for a brand. And I've done that just by public speaking and just being willing to talk about uncomfortable things. Why is it that veterinarians just don't want to do that, you know, aren't taught that. I mean, if for me, it's like every vet I've ever met is <laughs> right. very similar. They're just very introverted, very nervous about that stuff. What is it just, is that just how vet, cause you're not. So how does it work? So the one thing about me that often blows people's mind is that on the Myers-Briggs personality test, I am actually an introvert. And so the reason I share that is I would love for all the introverted uh, veterinary healthcare providers out there, whether you're a veterinarian or a nurse, to hear me understand that you can learn skills. And so I, <laughs> when I was younger, my mother used to call me a snob and stuck up because I didn't really dare talk to anybody. And so I really, really struggled with social skills. And I literally would watch how other people interacted in order to learn how I should interact. So I literally had to teach myself, if somebody asked me how I was, I had to think, now, did they really want to hear everything? Well, probably they didn't really want to hear everything. So I would have, I taught myself how to respond to that question. And so I just approach so many things that make me uncomfortable with this idea that it's a skill set that I can teach myself. And I just think many veterinarians are born as introverts. It becomes uncomfortable to learn a new skill and you need to force yourself to do that. The other thing that I think animal control did for me is that I have very, for better or for worse, I have very deep 
convictions. I think I have very deep beliefs and opinions and that passion for my beliefs and my opinions helped me get through all the pain and the difficulty with interacting with people about animal control. It's really very embarrassing. I would whisper if I could, but if you go back and listen to some of my previous interviews on the radio, I cried on the radio. I got so upset. I would write really horrible things in the media because I just lacked emotional intelligence. I lacked an understanding of how to manage and deal with conflict. And I just didn't understand how to defend myself. And so I felt very, very vulnerable. And so I, through animal control and my deep beliefs and what needed to happen in order to care for the animals and the people of Richmond County, I forced myself to learn some new skill sets. And from there on, it's a process I develop. One of the things I would love for everybody in the audience to understand is that when you're learning something new, you have to be able to go through the dip. And the dip, uh, there's a book about it. And so basically, you start off uh, feeling really uncomfortable, really outside of your comfort zone. You start to experiment with it. You will fail. You will fail over and over and over again. And once you feel that comfort level with failure and that ability to manage through chaos, you know on the other side things are going to be better and you have that faith to push through the dip and then you learn the skill. And I think too many times veterinarians have been taught to be perfectionists. That's how they've gotten through veterinary school and through undergraduate. They've gotten perfect grades and perfect assignments, and they have not developed that comfort level with failure. And developing that comfort level with failure is what drives you to make changes. Yeah, and I agree with you. And and I think I'm going to add on that just for everyone listening. This, Like I said, this is the second company I've owned. I've really you know, after five and a half years of doing this, it's just like, I've made so many mistakes. I think the thing that I've been able to do well is I make the mistake one time. I really understand what the hell happened, how to fix it and how it'll never happen again. And I've really committed to being like that. And by the way, I'm like a debilitating perfectionist. I mean, I have to like, I have like books I read about it. I mean, it causes real issues for me. I've been able to manage it in my personal life, but in my work life, it's really hard. And considering we're a design and aesthetic company and a company that has a lot of technical stuff, oh my God. I mean, even the way we structure things internally, I think most people, when they come here, they're like, this guy's nuts. I mean, we just had someone start a couple of days ago and her training, I asked her how it's going. She's like, I don't know how anyone's going to ever learn all of this because everything is just so particular the way you do things at Whisker Cloud. I'm like, well, that's why we're Whisker Cloud and that's why our competitors are our competitors and people are constantly coming to us from them because they don't care about the details. And I really, we had an incident recently where it was just a learning moment for our team and, and I went through with everyone and I explained to them, I don't care really about anything you do at Whisker Cloud. If you're not here and you don't care about the details, I'm not asking you for speed. I'm not asking you to be a superstar. I said, I need the most consistent detail oriented team. I don't want ups and downs. Don't have ups and downs. And I said, you're going to, but don't have severe ups and downs. I need you to be calm. We need to stay close to the mean. I don't need you to be the MVP every day. I'm not looking for that. I need you. I would rather have someone who's just like, so by the book and handles their stuff and does things the right way than to have someone who put in sports terms because I love sports, you know, someone who, who scores 38 points one day and then scores zero the next. I don't want that score 20 every day. I'll be happy. Yeah. And I think the most important thing, whether you're a practice owner, uh, managing a team 
or you're an individual contributor and you're trying to grow, I think is having an understanding and a vision of what makes you tick and what's important for you and then learning new skills on top of that. I love the idea of being consistent. I think that that's one of the most important things that anybody can contribute is being consistent. Just helps with client expectations. It helps with your team expectations and it helps you have that productivity that we might talk about. And one of the plugs I will make is one of the things I learned. I am so eternally grateful for my experience with salespeople salespeople are some of the most talented, intelligent people I have ever met. They can very quickly read a room, understand what their customers need, and then really be flexible to meet those needs. So working with salespeople have really helped me embrace rejection. So one of my favorite sayings is the first step to yes is no. And then being able to deliver quality service with having that flexibility to be flexible, to meet the needs of a customer. Those are all very concepts that just don't seem to jive, but it's that consistency and quality with the flexibility to meet the needs of the customer. And when that comes together, I think it really, really helps you feel accomplished and self-satisfied and resilient and get your customer's needs met. Well, I mean, we talked about the things we like most. And again, I always tell everyone, these are the things we want to talk about. It's, you know, I always ask everyone in these surveys, what do you like most? What do you dislike most? And and I'll tell you all, like recently, I've seen many of these videos. There was a video recently of like a slaughterhouse and they were hitting these cows over the head with sledgehammers. And A, I'm a pescatarian. And like beyond that, even take that out of it, it was horrific to watch yes. as an animal lover. And my wife is next to me and she's like, are you insane? Why are you watching that? I said, because I need to know, I want to know what's happening in the world. I want to know what I can do. I'm a person who has a voice who can spread this video and can, and hopefully get eyes on these things. And just because something's really hard to watch or hard yes. to talk about, if I'm just like, Oh God, that's nasty. I can't watch that. Yes. Well then, you know, I'm someone with 150,000 uh, followers on social media with a lot of animal lovers who might also feel something. So that's why we talk about the bad things, because if you just brush them under the rug, they stay the bad things. And unfortunately, here we are 25 to 30 episodes into this podcast and six years for me in vet med. And we're still talking about burnout and we're still talking about vets losing the joy in their work. And, and I'll, and I'll, I'll say one quick thing before you yeah. give me your thoughts here. I'm currently personally helping a veterinarian who owns an emergency hospital who was basically trolled by a, a young girl and went viral online and her business is being destroyed. And she put into an email this week, I no longer want to be a veterinarian. I'm right. done. I've lost all joy for this profession. And I'm, I'm going to be leaving my practice and finding a Aww. new career. And I thought like one little punk just ruined everything. And I guess for me, there's like two parts to that. One is like, okay, we all, as business owner, I run into multiple situations that just like drive me crazy. But what was happening before this, where this was such an easy decision that within a week of everything happening, and it's, and I will say, we're going to do an episode about it. It's gotten horrifically bad, but how do you just give up your whole career? So you were a vet, you're no longer doing that. Now you're going to be you know, self-employed and you were in corporate. So how do people go from, yeah, I'm in vet school. I love this to I'm done. I got to get the hell out of here. How does that happen? I think you started to make a point, which I agree with, which is it, it appears to happen overnight, but it doesn't, you know, it starts early for me personally. It started in vet school and not feeling adequate enough 
and feeling like I wasn't comfortable and I wasn't good enough uh, to deliver the care that uh, was up to my standards or my peers and colleagues' standards as well as customers' standards. And I think if I went back to practice today, I think I would be able to handle it much better. And I, I think that's because I've gotten a much thicker skin after having kind of been in a quasi-sales role where, yeah, you don't like me? Yeah, that's okay. That's great. Lots of people don't like me. Some people don't think I do great work and that's okay. And as weird as it sounds and as over simple as it sounds, I have really taught myself before I let myself go down the rabbit hole and go down that deep, dark hole to really start telling myself I don't care. Now, on the surface, that sounds absolutely horrible, but all feelings start with thoughts. And if we can control those thoughts, then we can help prevent those really bad feelings, which lead us into such a bad spot. And so for me, that I don't care really doesn't mean that I don't care. It's my ability to release from things that I'm not responsible for. I'm not responsible for you having a bad day. I'm not responsible for you not liking the way I'm dressed. I'm not responsible if I didn't trim your your cat's nails exactly the way you wanted them to. And these are all things that have happened to me. And now that I've gotten older, I just have learned to put myself in that space where I don't care. I have the confidence. I know who I am and I feel good about the work that I've done, that I'm definitely going to be positive and empathetic and help other people through their problems and concerns, but that's not mine to own. And again, I understand that seems very simple and maybe difficult to do, but I really do think it starts with not my circus, not my monkey. And I, yeah, I see veterinarians very frequently, even as I've traveled as a technical services veterinarian, I've seen veterinarians assume responsibility for things over which they don't have control and for which they are not responsible. And at times I even, blame's not maybe the right word, but I, I do worry that some of the things I see in the media that we tell ourselves as a profession further makes us more and more responsible for things that we cannot control and are not our responsibility. So for instance, I saw an article, um, it may have been several years ago now, where the veterinarian was talking about how, you know, as general practitioners, it's our responsibility to ensure that dogs and cats who are companion animals at home, that they have plenty of enrichment. And if we don't ensure they have enrichment, well, shame on us, we're bad veterinarians. That's just, to me, that's going too far. Yes, it's our responsibility to educate owners about the appropriate care of dogs and cats. But then to say, shame on us as general practitioners that we we can't contribute or change owner behavior. I, I think that's just taking far too much responsibility that we just should not own. And so I think really to kind of summarize all of that, the one thing I wish veterinarians would take to heart is to not own things that are not their responsibility and to let it go. It doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't get passionate about animal abuse and we don't get passionate about animal care, but we cannot control everything and we need to let go of those things that we cannot control. 
Yeah, I love what you were just saying about that because I recently had someone email our support team and like request to talk to me and I've met them before and it, that doesn't happen often. So I own the business. I got on the phone and I said, what's going on? And she said, I'm a little disappointed. I said, oh God, what happened? She said, well, our team page isn't fully up to date and there's a lot of people on there that don't work here anymore. I said, oh, why did, you know, did you tell our team that? And she was like, no, I haven't. But, you know, did you, did you want to remind us? And I was like, I said, wait, what? And she said, well, no one's reminded us to update our team page. And I said, I got to tell you something. We send three emails a month and I'm looking, you email us 10 to 12 times a month. Like, why didn't you just say something? She's like, well, I guess I never really thought to check the team page. And I said, I said, please don't take this the wrong way, but you know, this is nuts, right? It's like, what if I called the vet and was just like, I haven't brushed my dog's teeth in three months. Did you want to call me and remind me to do that? I said, wouldn't that be nuts? I said, you know, if I have like a Netflix subscription and I don't watch for a month, should someone at Netflix call me and say, Adam, you haven't watched for a month. Are you going to watch something? I said, do you think this is weird? And she was like, no, we depend on you. I said, well, we send three emails a month that have all kinds of tips and ideas. And I just, I found the whole conversation weird. And I mean, we ended on good terms, but I don't think she fully understood like where I was coming from. Right. And I was like, and right. I said, so can, can you tell me who needs to be removed from your page? She's like, I'll do an audit and I'll let you know. I'm not kidding. That was over a week ago. We have not right. heard. So it's weird. That's weird. That's a weird line of right. thinking. So yeah, I don't want vets to think that they have to do that. I mean, and that's one of the things that we try to include on a lot of our sites when our copywriters are writing, especially when it comes like dental care, it's dental care is a mix of the cleanings and preventative care that we do here, but it's also what you're doing at home. And if you're doing a good job or not, and that's really important. It's the same thing with like pet weight gain and diet and, and all yeah. those other things. I don't know where does it, I mean, and we, and we think about this a lot too. We send a lot of, Hey, what are your hours for this? Hey, is your, are your services up to date? And then we get, we get people to email there. We'll send out that email and they'll be like, Oh my God, we've been doing laser therapy for two years. We never told you it's not on our website. And I'm like, man, like crazy. So yeah. And I assume that probably weighs on a lot of vets, right? Because they're yes. like, like, where does it end? At what point are they just like, I can only do so much. Yes. Yes. And so, especially in my years at animal control, I was responsible for the death. Technically speaking, I was responsible for the death of 40 dogs and cats per day, five days a week, because I was the director of the animal control agency. Um, and so early in my career, it was very hard for me to disconnect because I kept telling myself, I should be better than this. I should be able to convince people to spay and neuter. I should be able to find the funds to get all of these cats and dogs spayed and neutered. And I am the superhero and I should be able to get this done. And now later in my life, now I understand that when I do that and I take that attitude, all I end up doing is I make myself less effective because now I become burnt out. I suffer from compassion fatigue and I can no longer do my job which is really, really important. And then I have to withdraw. And so it's just like being on an airplane, right? If the oxygen masks drop and I don't take care of myself first, then the kid or my grandmother or whoever's sitting next to me that I need to provide care for, they don't get the care they need because I didn't take care of myself first. So I think being able to disconnect and not take responsibility for everything is a really, really important part of being able to provide self-care and then being able to improve in the profession. How nuts was it working at animal control? Was it just chaos every day? So I think another thing that I, I would love to share with veterinary healthcare teams about animal control is that 
the people who work at animal control are doing absolutely the best they can with what they have. And, and I know everybody says that, but working with the public in some of these situations can be very difficult, can be hard to understand and hard to tease apart what happens. And so the folks at animal control, if we didn't have those type of people, we wouldn't be able to get those jobs done. And so I always want and hope that everybody expresses care and kindness for animal control folks. And when I say animal control, I probably mean predominantly those shelters that have to euthanize animals. And working with the public, I actually learned the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished when I worked at animal control. So I learned very quickly that you have to be very specific. You have to be very consistent and you sometimes have to have a very hard line about sticking to the rules in order to take care of both the people and the community as well as animals. And so I have many stories that are just uh, somewhat crazy. So probably one of my most interesting stories that I think that folks may think about animal control differently is we had a nuisance dog in a neighborhood and this dog, the owner was allowed the dog to run loose in the neighborhood and we would get multiple complaints over time that the dog would chase people. I don't believe it had bitten anybody, but there were children in the neighborhood and elderly people in the neighborhood. And we were very concerned that at some point the dog was going to chase somebody and bite them and cause real problems. And so the animal control officer got called out again And we kind of negotiated a deal, which we would frequently negotiate, which is if you turn the dog over to animal control, we will not take you to court. If you choose to keep the dog, which is fine, if you want to keep the dog and make your case in court, you can go to court and you can stand up and explain why your dog has not been restrained and why it's not under control. Well, the owner decided to give up control of the dog and turned over ownership to animal control and we took the dog in. Well, the last thing that I wanted to do was to place a dog in a new home that had learned it could roam the streets and that it could chase people and that it was not a dog that I felt was fit to be placed as a companion or as a pet. So the dog had been turned over to us. We took ownership of it. And I made the executive decision as the director of animal control and as a veterinarian in charge who understood animal behavior to euthanize the dog. Well, the owner had sent a friend in and she thought, well, we were going to put that dog back up for adoption. And so she sent the friend in and the friend wanted to adopt this dog without telling us that there was a connection. Well, she then complained to the media, uh, to a reporter that we had erroneously euthanized her dog and it was completely unfair and inappropriate. And it's so hard for the public to understand that we made a very difficult decision that we felt it was best, not just for the community and for the children and the elderly people in that neighborhood, but also was best for that dog to euthanize the dog. And so I think, you know, that's probably not a story that most healthcare professionals hear about how crazy and difficult it can be trying to meet the needs of not just the community, but also the pets and the people and the people who work at animal control. So it's, it's a really, really difficult job. A couple of years ago, and I'm sitting here talking to you in my home office, surrounded by Incredible Hulk stuff, and I have my nine-year-old Boston Terrier Baxter snoring pretty loudly next to me. And as you were telling that story, I was having these just horrific flashbacks. This was two, three years ago now, I think three years, and I was away for work for one night. 
And we lived in this really, really like upscale apartment complex right by the ocean in Huntington Beach, California. My wife was out walking the dogs and this woman had her two giant pit bulls off Ugh. the leash and they ran up and my my 30 pound nine year old Boston Terrier, who's literally the sweetest guy on earth, they bit through his face, into his gums, into his mouth and bit my wife. My wife calls me screaming, Baxter's bleeding, and I hear this woman like cursing out my wife, telling her to leave, calling her names. And I'm in Portland, Oregon. Oh. And I go to the airport and it was late in the afternoon. There was no more flights. I couldn't get out. And I'm trapped. And A, my dog was rushed to the emergency care where he had to go under emergency surgery. So I get back the next day and I don't have an issue with pit bulls, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on where this story ended up. I don't have an issue with pit bulls, but you know, I get home. I see my wife's foot pretty bad. I see my dog's face horrible. And I, I do a good job of not being the Incredible Hulk. And on that particular day, I went so far. Be, I mean, I went to that neighbor's home and it was woman and this guy and they had, I was told in this neighborhood, you're not allowed to have pit bulls. That's fine. I don't have anything against pit bulls. That's the rule. And I went and knocked on, and I didn't knock on the door. I punched the door and they oh. opened up and they had three pit bulls in there right then and there. So I'm like seeing red and I'm like, here's the bill for my wife and this, and there's more to come. And she basically slammed the door in my face and was like, kiss my ass. So I, first I go to the apartment complex. I'm like, and as you can imagine, I'm beyond living. And I'm like, your contract that I signed says no pitbulls. She has three. They totally BS me, get me out of the office. So I'm like, I'm livid. I call animal control. They refuse to do anything. So I was like, I walked away. I said, okay, I'm furious. I just wanted to be home with my wife and we have two dogs and the guy wanted to be home with everyone. So that night we had a little dog park in our neighborhood. I'm at the dog park and one of the neighbors says, what happened to Baxter? I told them and I said, yeah, it was, you know, the woman in building two with her pit bulls. And he, and, and he says to me, oh, that's crazy. They almost killed that other dog. And I said, what do you mean? Uh. He's like, yeah, there was a terrier in another building. They bit into its spine and almost killed it. The dog never healed. I mean, I found out at eight o'clock at night. I mean, I must have left 10 voicemails because I, I go find that person. I get the details. They said, well, we talked to animal control. They wouldn't do anything. So now I'm like, oh, my God, I'm about to be John Wick in Huntington Beach, California. I mean, the next morning I left a voicemail for the head of animal control in Orange County. And I just said, you better call me back because I'm about to be a hellacious tidal wave. And I went to the front office and I was just like, I mean, I ended up getting out of our contract and we moved and we ended up buying our house. But I mean, I went like I was totally John Wick and through my talks with animal control, Orange County, I just said, what is this going to take? One dog was almost paralyzed and had its spine bit into my dog's face was ripped open. My wife's foot was bit. And again, I, and I kept saying to them, I don't want the dogs put down. Just get them away from these people because these people are clearly doing a really bad job. I even called my veterinarian at the time. I said, am I just a piece of shit? And he said, not at all. He goes, honestly, man, the next time this happens, it's going to be a child. It's going to be a person and it's going to be a deadly bite. So, I mean, I went to war and then the next day they came and took all three dogs and I said, can you not put them down? And they were like, dude, just stay out of it. We're, you know, we got yeah. them away from these people. Yeah. But I mean, I, and I felt, and I still think about those dogs. I'm like, shit, I just, I mean, again, I'm a, I'm no. a diehard dog and cat, you know, and I told the story about the cow. I'm an animal lover, but right. I mean, I was, I was John Wick for about four days until we were out of that building until she did cover the costs of my wife and the dog. And cause I did, I mean, I said, I mean, I said to all parties involved, I said, 
any drama you think I'll cause when my wife gets bit, when my dog gets almost killed and I find out about the other dog and I found out everyone's lying. I said, I'm going to be 10 times worse than you all imagine. And I, and I hate to say that on the podcast because everyone knows I'm a nice guy, but I mean that, but I mean, animal control was probably like, man, this guy's a nut, which I wasn't a nut. It was, that was horrific that that dog even had the opportunity to do that to Baxter and Liz. Yeah. So I think what people forget is that dogs are predators <laughs> and they have a prey drive. And so it doesn't matter if it's your chihuahua or my Pomeranian. My Pomeranian was actually one of the best ratters. She loved, she loved and could find rats anywhere. Or it's, you know, it's a hundred pound pit bull. They all are predators and they have a prey drive. And then unfortunately for some dogs, that prey drive is stronger than for others. And whether it's a pit bull or a Rottweiler or a Great Dane or a Chihuahua, they can all have that same drive, which is driven by noises like squeaking, screaming, running away. Those are all behaviors that just instigate that predatory drive and and accelerate that excitement. And so at one point I actually adopted a pit bull and I love pit bulls. One of my best dogs was a pit bull and one of my worst dogs was a pit bull. And the worst dog pit bull that I I got, nicest dog you would ever meet, beautiful, athletic, loved being with me uh, and my boyfriend, was wonderful around adults, was very submissive, but she had such a high prey drive that she would attack other dogs. And I was always, always worried that she was going to escalate into her attacking children. And so I made the very difficult decision to have her euthanized because she wasn't a happy dog. That high prey drive, if if she couldn't act on it, it was causing her stress. And that stress level just escalated until the point where she was so stressed and unhappy that it wasn't fair to her. And so I think so many times we forget that there is expected normal behavior from our dogs, but unfortunately we can't accept it. And I used to always talk to my volunteers because they would always want to keep these dogs at animal control. And we would have the conversation. It's not the dog's fault. This is what we would expect a normal dog and how we would expect them to act, but it's just not acceptable. We can't accept that kind of behavior because it's just going to result in harm for everybody. And of course, the more dogs you have in a larger pack and that predatory behavior just escalates and the excitement escalates and then bad things happen. And the one thing I'm sure all of the veterinary healthcare team folks on this call uh, know, but in case you don't, anytime anybody has been bitten, whether it's a dog or a person, that should be reported to the health department because there needs to be confirmation that the dog has been vaccinated for rabies and that dog has to be quarantined. Even if it has been vaccinated for rabies, it has to be quarantined at home. And if it has not been vaccinated for rabies, then the victim, if you will, can actually request that the dog be euthanized and tested. So those are some important things to remember when you are dealing with a dog bite. Yeah. And again, it's like that situation was so hard because I think about, you know, it's like I'm sitting here, like I said, Baxter sitting next to me right yeah, now. He's kind of looking at me like Baxter. you're talking to me, man. I know. And he's like, what are you talking about? But like I said, like, I can't imagine anyone saying like Baxter needs to be euthanized. But of course, Baxter's not going to go bite a no. dog's face in half and not no. bite a person. So, yeah, it was chaos. I compare it to a person, right? Like if you if, if you and I were having a casual conversation walking down the street and two guys or two women came up to us and just punched us in the face until we had to go to the hospital, 
Yep. We would put those two people in jail and depending on the severity of the crime, there would be consequences. And so it's not that we are punishing the dogs. It's, it's not about punishing the dogs, but it is making sure that, that it doesn't happen in the future. And I really am of the mindset that if you have a dog with a really high predatory drive and they're living in an urban environment, that's not fair to that dog. And it's almost sometimes more humane to, to just let that dog go. So as hard as that decision is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have this really insane love for animals. So it's like, even to think about, even to think about the dog that did that to Baxter and Liz. And by the way, Liz, if you're listening, I don't know why I've said Baxter's name first. I'm really sorry. (laughs) And I love you. But anyway, I'll get us back on veterinary topic, but I appreciate you giving me your thoughts there. Cause that, that whole scenario. And again, like me not being me being away just made it. It's what it's still one of the worst nights of my life. Cause I, I sat up all night dripping sweat in this hotel room in Portland calling the emergency vet. Like, how is he? How is he? But so the final point we'll talk about is I asked, was an essential thing a vet med needs in the future? And you said above all else leaders. And one of the things I harp on, on this podcast a lot is it's really easy to talk about being a leader. A lot of people can read a book and say, I want to be a leader. And I had this conversation. We have some big things happening at Whisker Cloud right now. And I told our management team literally yesterday morning, I said, hey, I want you all to remember something. Leadership, there's a lot more to it than just being able to tell the people that report to you what to do. I said, leadership is about optics and it's about feel. I said, people should be able to feel that you're a leader here and they should be able to see it without you actively showing it. And I think in vet med, you have introverted people and you have a lot of people who kind of don't want to understand that they're running a business. Say, I'm just a vet. No, you're a business owner. And I'm just a vet. No, you have 20 people on your staff that need you to make strong decisions and need you to help guide them. So I've definitely seen a massive lack of leadership in veterinary medicine and everyone talks about it. And and you're not the first person that's been on this podcast where we've had this conversation. So I'll ask you point blank. If someone out there is listening right now and they don't feel that they're a good enough leader, whether they're a practice manager, whether they're the lead technician at their hospital, whether they're the head of the reception team or they're the business owner, what do they really have to start doing and focusing on to become a better leader? Well, first and foremost... I think the thing that drives me the craziest is when I hear healthcare teams, whether it's a nurse or veterinarian say, yeah, you know, I just wasn't born to be a leader. I'm just not a leader. I can't do it. So I think the number one thing that people have to do is they have to understand that leadership is a skill that anybody can learn. So first and foremost, understand that you can develop leadership skills and you can start very small. And so first leadership takes an understanding of self. I have to admit, again, probably TMI, but I've been to psychotherapists, I've engaged coaches, I've read tons of books, I ask for feedback. And so the number one, and I've taken a lot of personality tests. And so self-exploration, I think, is the, the first part to all of that. And it can be very simple. You can take lots of personality tests online. You can take DISC and Myers-Briggs. And so having that understanding of where you excel and where your strengths are can make you feel very confident and know that you have those skills and, and those abilities in that area. So you can feel comfortable and confident practicing that. And then having an understanding of maybe where you have some deficits or some opportunities to grow. And then that helps you really focus very specifically on specific skill sets. So first, I promise 
Anybody listening can become a leader. Second, self-exploration to understand where you excel and where you want to grow. And part of that self-exploration is also having a vision of what it is you want to accomplish and who you want to be. And then third, setting goals to achieve that. And so this is going to sound, I am really telling you, Adam, way more about myself than I have ever told anybody. But I do that to people. <laughs> the other day... So I grew up in a working class family that was on the poor side. I I had a single mother who worked several jobs. I got free lunches. I then ended up a single mom through vet school. And when I got my kids into school, I had the teacher say, oh, we didn't realize you were a veterinarian. We, We thought you were poor based on how you dressed your children. So I was a single working mom, really struggled. Uh, And then finally, the other day, my boyfriend and I treated ourselves to a really expensive meal in New York City. And I went to the bathroom and I looked in the window, in the mirror, and I thought, I have finally become the woman that I wanted to become. And the message behind that is by visualizing who you want to be, what you want to become, oftentimes mimicking that behavior and faking it until you make it is a great way to learn those skill sets. And so finding either your Marvel superhero that you want to be like, you know, what would Wonder Woman do or what would the Hulk do or finding some other character or real life person that, that you can emulate, I think is a really good way to really help visualize what it is you want to become and who you want to become and then help you kind of work towards that. And so for me, whether it was learning a new surgery, learning a new technique, giving a talk about a new topic or learning a new leadership skill, I actually like to visualize and practice in my mind what it looks like and how I would act and just act through it numerous times and then try it. And the worst case is, is that people uh, don't like it and you try again. Yeah. And I always tell people, you know, I have a big company now and I've ran other teams and, you know, it's just one of those things where I don't know if I look in the mirror and say, man, he's a great leader. I, but I, what I do, I look in the mirror and I see someone that, I mean, every single job at Whisker Club from the most entry level yes. to the toughest, I can do every single one. And I do every single one every day. And I let our team know that. And we recently had someone on our support team. In a meeting with her boss and I, she said to me, doing support tickets is beneath me. And I let her go. I literally, I said, I think you've been doing great here. I'm going to actually end your employment here at Whisker Cloud right now. And I ended it on the spot and I had no reason to do that. She looked shocked. Even her boss looked shocked. And when when we got off the phone and I instructed her on what to do, I talked to her boss. I said, I said, I never want another person who has that mentality. And I, I mean, I was yes. pretty harsh. I said, you know what? Get her out, get her the hell out of here. Take her out of everything. The fact that she looked at her boss and I, and, and just said that, I mean, I was, I mean, I've never Literally, I've never fired someone on the spot like that. And I wasn't even rude about it. I said, hey, based on that comment, I'm going to stop this call. We're going to let you go right now. We're going to pay you for the day. Here's everything you need. We'll be emailing you shortly from HR. Best of luck. And she, I mean, she was visibly shaken. The way she said it too, she was like, if you think I'm just going to sit here and do support tickets and, and go back and forth with these people all day, like I'm a web designer, I should be doing more than that. And I was just like, goodbye. I'm sorry. I don't know where you think you are. That won't fly anywhere. And it just hit me so wrong. And again, but I wanted our team to know we, and we talked to some of the leaders on that team from our support and web team. And I explained the situation. I said, I've never done that before. I don't want anyone to th- else to think that they're going to lose their job, but I just need you all to understand there is not a job here that I don't do every single day. And I want you all to know something like 
offering support to the people that trust us to help them with their hosting, their SEO, their website, their marketing, all of these things, that is never, you will never be above that. None of us are ever above that. And it's just, and she's gone. So, and it's interesting because typically if people get let go here for performance reasons, people are kind of sad. Oh, that was my friend. This one felt different. It sent an interesting reverberation literally through the company where people were like, okay, he really cares about our customers. That's really interesting. I mean, I and I felt like it sent a strong message. I've never thought twice about that decision since. And it was two weeks ago. And I think the most important thing that I'm hearing you say is that a strong leader needs to have very clear convictions and a very clear vision of what the company stands for. And so as a the advice I would give to practice owners is is that's that's something I feel like there's a great opportunity is you've got to start with your why. And when you start with your why for your practice, you can then engage the right people and the right talent and they gravitate towards your clinic. They want to work for you. They want to work with you. They want to stay at your hospital. And so when you're clear with your mission, your vision and your values, especially your core values, uh, the rest of it just becomes that much easier. And that's just to me, the core and the foundation of organizational leadership is being able to communicate that vision and that why. Love it. I mean, literally, that was perfectly said. So after this episode, people are going to be like, okay, I love Bonnie. Where do they find you online? What are you up to? How do they find you? All that fun stuff. I'm in this very odd uh, space of transitioning. They can find me on LinkedIn. And they can also find me on my new website, which is bonvetlife.com. So it's B-O-N-V-E-T-L-I-F-E. So Bonvet uh, was actually a name of a company I started a number of years ago that frankly failed, but I love the brand and the idea of Bonvet. And the idea is that Bon means good. So it's not just me being egotistical about my name, but I believe that every veterinarian should understand what their own Bon Vet life is. So what is their own good veterinary life that they aspire to? whether they want to be the best practitioner and clinician they can ever be, or whether they want to uh, start their own company or become divisional vice president for Merck Animal Health. I'd love to be able to help people in finding their own bond vet life. So that's that's how folks can find me. And I'm hoping to start a, a coaching practice. Um, so that's that's what I'm working on. I love it. And I'm now realizing I mispronounced your name, didn't I, at the start of this? Did I mispronounce your last name? Uh, I don't remember. Okay, cool. Um, well, I tend to do that. But anyway, it's no, okay. I mean, and we're going to link to the site. We're going to link to your LinkedIn and we'll make sure everyone can find you. And, you know, hey, you and I met one minute before we hit record. And this was one of the best, easiest convert, you know, and even, oh, you know, even talking through like the animal control stuff, that's not an easy conversation to have. And, you know, I'm so thankful that you came on and I really appreciate your time. Well, Adam, I just want to say thank you for all that you're bringing to the veterinary profession. And that's one of the things, again, I'm being a little repetitive here, but I really hope and wish that veterinary healthcare teams understand how many support people out there who are allied to our profession, who really care about our success personally, professionally, financially, and clinically. And I just hope that we continue to be open-minded and embrace all the new ideas that folks like you bring to our profession, because I think folks like you are just going to make us better and stronger. So I'm glad to have you as a part of our profession. 
Well, thank you very much. And to everyone out there listening, if you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you go find Whisker Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Like, share, review, all of that fun stuff. I suck at promoting it. But yes, please go (laughs) listen and subscribe. And thank you all so much. And thanks, Bonnie. Have a wonderful night. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate your time. 